my name's Tom Jennings and this is the 24 Frames Cast. In today's episode, Professor Brian Cox reminds me why I bothered to pay my licence fee. I take a look at New York Press film critic Armin White and this week's featured review will be on Tron and Tron Legacy. But before I begin, I want to talk about the passing of one of my favourite directors. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. It's a depression. Everybody's out of work or scared of losing their job. The dollar buys a nickel's worth. Banks are going bust. Shopkeepers keep a gun under the counter. Punks are running wild in the street. There's nobody anywhere who seems to know what to do, and there's no end to it. We know the air is unfit to breathe, and our food is unfit to eat. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes, as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. It's like everything everywhere is going crazy, so we don't go out anymore. We sit in the house, and slowly the world we're living in is getting smaller, and all we say is, please, at least leave us alone in our living rooms. Let me have my toaster and my TV and my steel-belted radios, and I won't say anything. Just leave us alone. Well, I'm not going to leave you alone. I want you to get mad. I don't want you to protest. I don't want you to write. I don't want you to write to your congressman because I wouldn't know what to tell you to write. I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians and the crime in the street. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. God damn it. My life has value. So, I want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore! You can probably tell by the clip I just played that the director I'm talking about is Sidney Lumet, who last month tragically passed away. Now, my relationship with understanding what it was film directors did came when I was about 13 or 14 years old. Of course I knew directors by name, I knew the likes of Steven Spielberg and George Lucas, but I don't think I ever really truly grasped what it was a film director did. Each week in Britain there used to be a publication called the Radio Times, which was essentially just the TV listings for the BBC over the coming week, and it used to have a section on the films of the week. Normally there would be a pick of one in particular, which was normally done by the film critic Barry Norman. And one particular week, that film of the week was Brian De Palma's Kalito's Way. It was showing on Sky, so I checked with the censor at the time, which was my father, that I was okay to tape it. And there is a moment when Al Pacino and Sean Penn are about to get on the boat. And something very peculiar happened just as they were about to. The camera suddenly tilted. And for anyone who's seen the film, you will know that a disaster follows. Now. What struck me was the fact that it was the first time I really became consciously aware that the director had asked for the camera to move and of course what he was telling us was that there was something bad about to happen. It was kind of like an epiphany really and I suddenly realised that directors have their own tone and style. Of course it wouldn't be until a few years later that I discovered the auteur theory, um, the idea of a director being the author of their work. But obviously this was a kind of an early conclusion that each director had an individual style and form. Subsequently, I went back and I re-watched many of Steven Spielberg's films and I began to see patterns emerging within them. The way in which the camera moved, the way in which his characters behaved seemed 
to be consistent throughout. What it did then was inspire me to take more notice of the names that appeared at the start of films. I began to devour the work of directors like James Cameron and I suddenly saw strong female leads and very action orientated films. One week in particular I remember a copy of the Radio Times arriving at our house and the film of the week that week was Dog Day Afternoon. I noticed the director, Sidney Lumet, checked with the house censor again that it was okay to record it, which it was, and the next day sat down and watched the film. Now, I understood from the description that it was a bank heist film. I watched it and the lead character, Sonny, played by Al Pacino, does indeed try and rob a bank. Only there was something slightly different about this bank robber. He wasn't robbing for material gain. He was doing it for the love of his partner who was actually needing the money to have a sex change operation. And I was kind of confused really by what I saw. I didn't really understand the kind of the whole sex change part, but I didn't really kind of see anything that other directors like De Palma and James Cameron and Steven Spielberg had. The camera didn't move around as freely as those directors like to use it. The focus seemed to be more on the character and the situation and what it evoked within those people in the film. In those days there was a lack of things like Wikipedia and IMDB so it was actually quite hard to see more of Lumet's work. Although I would be lying if I said I was completely blown away by Dog Day Afternoon. I knew there was something in there that was worth further study and it wouldn't be till I was playing tennis now. At the tender age of 13, 14, I was actually, without blowing my own trumpet, um, quite a good tennis player and I actually used to play in an adult league and my partner at the time was an avid film fan and I mentioned Dog Day Afternoon to him and he suddenly re started reading off the names of films like Network and The Verdict and Twelve Angry Men and luckily he actually had some on video which he lent to me. So my next exposure to Lamette was Network. Now again I wouldn't say I enjoyed the film as much as I did as something like Raiders of the Lost Ark but again I found this focus on the characters and what struck me was how recognisable they were as people to me. There was a nobility in them which I think I probably saw in my father and his friends and also there were weaknesses which I also saw in other adults I knew. Again what I noticed was the humanity about these people especially the character played by William Holden this kind of frustrated older generation of person and as the years went on I revisited Network over and over and of course it is a film that I suppose kind of just gets better and in many respects more relevant with age. Um, if you think about things that are going on with Charlie Sheen at the moment, that kind of very public breakdown being splattered and exploited all over the news, well I think that kind of happens to Peter Finch in Network as well. I began as I went to university and kind of earned some money to pick up more of Lumet's films and I kept going back to these characters who seemed to expose a humanity in them and one which I found be increasingly recognisable in my own life. Of course you can say they are they are not by any means perfect people, yet there is a truth to them which I think is so profoundly lacking in modern cinema. It's obviously a very easy and cheap comparison to compare something like Twelve Angry Men and the characters in that to something, anything Brett Ratner or Michael Bay has produced over the years. However, I think it's important just to highlight the difference in sensibilities of those directors and Sidney Lumet. Very much so, I find, in modern films, 
we are simply told to accept something. We are not shown why we should accept something is happening on screen. And it's as superficial film viewing experience as you can get. There are no moments in Michael Bay or Brett Ratner films where I think you really truly understand the inner feelings of a character in any kind of deep or meaningful way. In particular I look at a scene in Network with William Holden when he talks to Faye Dunaway and he kind of breaks up with her and says that he feels rotten for what he has done to his wife and leaving her and it is a gut-wrenchingly human moment which I think even when I first saw the film I was affected by it and I'm even more affected by it now. When you look at the character he goes off with the younger more beautiful fade in a way and leaving his wife who is the rock behind him and it's a superficial stupid move on his part and to see him recognize that is so profoundly moving. We all talk about the um, I'm as mad as hell moment but to me that is one of the most touching scenes you will ever see in a mainstream film. Lemet probably won't go down in cinema history as being one of the most stylistic of filmmakers. I don't mean that in a kind of detrimental way. I think it's a testament to the story he tells and the power of the characters that he seems very much a kind of interloper on a scene rather than a meddler with them. The camera very rarely sweeps into a scene, the editing's very measured and slow paced. You could almost say that he has a kind of a theatrical sensibility to him. But what you realise is, is that you are so transfixed by what you are seeing that you are kind of oblivious to the fact that he's actually there. I don't think that's banality or blandness. I just think it's someone who has an absolute mastery of telling a compelling and moving story. Since Lemet's death, I have gone back and had a look at many of his films. And I've also managed to buy and order a few on Love Film and I'm very much looking forward to in the, in the next few months to kind of get to know these films a little bit better. One day there might even be my own retrospective on Lamet. For the record I've kind of, as soon as I heard that he'd actually died I suddenly thought well, what is my favourite film of his and it's not Work or Dog Day Afternoon, it's actually one he made I think in 62 um, called Failsafe which was came out the same time as Doctor Strange Love. There was a lot of controversy at the time because of the similarities between the two. Um, whereas Doctor Strange Love is a very black comedy, Failsafe kind of takes exactly the same situation and plays it deadly serious. It is one of the most terrifying films I have ever seen. You can pick it up for literally next to nothing on Amazon and I'm sure it's on Love Film and uh, Netflix over in the United States so do make sure you get to check it out. So you have a film director like Sidney Lumet who is universally loved by critics and audiences the world over, who has made some of the most memorable films of all time. Who then, as a eulogy to him, would possibly write something like this? Network may have predicted reality TV, infotainment series and rampant corporate media greed, but is still an overacted, visually glum, ham-fisted piece of agitprop. Not lively, just aggressive, an offshoot of Lemet's TV-bred blatancy. Of course, the only person who could possibly say something like that would be New York press film critic Armin White. Until relatively recently, I used to think that film critics were important, and I used to 
actually listen to what they had to say. That kind of changed for reasons too I'll get to in a minute, but the kind of origins of my kind of adoration of critics started when I was about 16 years old. It was then I used to buy magazines like Empire and Total Film, and I would look through them and see the films that were given five stars out of five or four stars out of five, and assume that they must be good films. This theory kind of began to evaporate around the time Star Wars The Phantom Menace came out. For months, Empire had given us tantalising glimpses of the production, the pods, the miniature spaceships. The film came along, I watched it, and I think like a lot of people, sat there vaguely bemused. Empire had given the film 4 out of 5 in a review that seemed to be not only trying to convince us, but the person who wrote it, that the film was actually quite good. I began to perhaps think that in exchange for all its on-set exclusives and interviews with directors and actors, there was a certain trade-off with Empire, and that trade-off was journalistic integrity. Of course, the magazine is a commercial enterprise, and I actually stopped buying it about four years ago when I realised that essentially I was spending £4 a month on a series of aftershave adverts and meaningless reviews for films that I had absolutely zero interest in ever watching. To give some examples, films like Terminator Salvation were a 4 out of 5 effort according to Empire. That had obviously had nothing to do with any potential uh, exclusive interviews with Christian Bale for the next Batman film, and so on and so forth. I think you can probably think of more examples. I also began looking at film critics in the British newspapers. My newspaper of choice at the time was The Guardian, whose critic was a chap called, and I think still is actually called, uh, Peter Bradshaw. Now Bradshaw seemed to have a slightly different take on things. He would take films that were universally popular and then write a negative review about them. For the first few times I kind of ignored this until it got to the point where Lord of the Rings The Two Towers came out and I jokingly said to a friend, I bet Peter Bradshaw gives this film an average review and sure enough he gave this film 3 out of 5 and said it was boring. This is also the same guy that gave The Fantastic Four 4 out of 5 and said it was a perfect example of the genre. I think you can see where you're going. I think it became perfectly clear that he was setting himself up as a contrarian to what everyone else thought. Now, of course, the world would be an extremely boring place if everyone had the same opinion. I don't think I'm self-righteous enough to say that if you don't agree with something I say, you are wrong. However, what I do like is debating with people who do have a different opinion and are able to express that opinion in a way which kind of forces you and challenges you to think about your own. A perfect example is one of my favourite authors and journalists, Christopher Hitchens. Now, I personally agree with almost everything he has to say about religion. I think that's one thing we can definitely agree on. However, whilst I've recently been reading his biography, there's an entire chapter dedicated to the war in Iraq, something that he was a big supporter of. I personally didn't think the war in Iraq was right. However, having read Hitchens' thought on it, I was 
although I wasn't going to change my own opinion, I certainly felt better educated as to the argument to the other side. Armand White is a contrarian and someone whose opinion goes against that of the popular grain, only there is a slight difference with Armand White. When I talk about Christopher Hitchens, if you see any kind of clip of him on YouTube, he has a refinement and class and humour to him and in his work, which someone like Armand White simply doesn't have. And what I find to be so infuriating about White's form of criticism is how self-defeating and utterly almost meaningless it is. I first came across him when I was listening to the Slash Filmcast and he was on to talk about the film Inception. He had written a particularly negative, scathing review in fact, and if you actually look at his work you'll notice he has a particular hatred of um, Christopher Nolan. And during his review of the film, in fact during the discussion on the film, White continually made the point that the film said nothing about the human experience. This kind of confused me quite a bit because I, that is such a massive term and in order to know if a film isn't saying something about the human experience you would have to have experienced everything a human can which of course is utterly impossible. So that was the first thing that began to confuse me. The next thing he was doing which I found completely ridiculous was trashing the film on the basis that it was simply ripping off other films. In particular he drew attention to the scene in which we see three incidents occurring in separate times at the same time on screen. I think that's how the best way of describing it. It's the scene where um, the guy's running around in the hotel and everything goes crazy but you know what I'm talking about. He actually pours scorn on that rather technically brilliant moment by saying that it had been done before by D.W. Griffith in Intolerance. Again I think Armand is way off the mark here because one thing all filmmakers will readily attest to is that they steal and rip off from other filmmakers. White's favourite director is Steven Spielberg, who himself blatantly admits to stealing from David Lean, who himself copied directors from the 20s and 30s in his own work. Again, the argument is completely redundant. Reading some of White's reviews is an at times baffling experience. He loves filmmakers like Michael Bay, and in particular gave a glowing review to Transformers 2, a film which was widely derided by critics and film audiences. Now, everyone has their guilty pleasures. Sitting on my shelf at the moment next to Michael Antonioni's Red Desert is Baz Luhrmann's Australia. I will not sit here and insult people's intelligence by saying I think Australia is a good film call it a guilty pleasure or whatever you want. I think it does have its merits. I think it is a good looking film. I think it's at times it's quite funny. But of course I'm aware that it is ridiculously nostalgic. It is cheesy. It has a sheen to it which I think is um, decidedly Hollywood. But whatever, I like it. If I was Armand White and I wanted to try and convince you of the merits of Australia, I might do something like this. I'd take a film like Nicholas Rios' Walkabout and I would say that that film is racist, white, middle-class Australian wish fulfillment. And you might say, well, how can I possibly come to that conclusion? 
and if I was white I would say something along the lines of that when the young Aboriginal boy hangs himself he's actually doing that as he knows that him and his culture are completely out of step with their white overlords and that's what they should do in order to allow the white population to move on from the guilt of what happened to the Aborigines in Australia. I would then come back and say that in the context of Baz Luhrmann's Australia that that film handles the question of Aboriginal integration to society and respect for their way of life in a far more intellectually compelling and moving way. You could then turn around with some justification and say what I have said is just complete and utter bollocks and you would be entirely right it is complete and utter bollocks however it is this type of thing that White continually tries to foister onto his readers as being intellectual film criticism. In the context of Transformers 2 White tried to argue on the Slash Filmcast that 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 film was making a bold statement about consumerism. I think I can say with some certainty that the only interest of Michael Bay's in that film was Megan Fox's ass. You can see it constantly in his work for one of the most incredible pieces of film criticism I've ever come across was his review of Hellboy 2. It literally beggars belief the claims and statements that he makes during that review. It is absolute nonsense of the highest order. All of this could be forgiven if, like Christopher Hitchens, White was a charming, witty, funny person. However, he isn't. He is, by all evidence, a complete and utter asshole. He is chairman of the New York Film Critics Circle. How that came about, I don't know. There must be some manner of... He must rule it like some kind of dictator, like Kim Il-yong or something. I can't quite work it out. And at the circles award ceremony this year he was rude and obnoxious to all his guests in particular Annette Benning, who won an award for The Kids Are Alright a film which in a barely contained piece of homophobic rage White completely destroyed so rather than acknowledge her role in that film he made sarcastic references to other films she was in that were far better actually reducing Bennett to tears again what kind of a host does that he had a spat with Darren Aronofsky, who took exception to White's rudeness. He then went on television to kind of justify his actions and just came across as a conceited, arrogant wanker. So why then am I even bothering wasting time talking about Armand White? Well, I think the answer is that he is, to me anyway, a sign of how far things have fallen in the world of criticism. Pauline Kael was a notoriously harsh critic but there is in her writing, I think, a real wit and charm. White's writing lacks any of this. It is, I suppose, well written, but says absolutely nothing other than a perceived intelligence and understanding of film that says so much about its author and nothing about the films of which he is critiquing. There is room in film criticism for the voice of the other, for the person who goes against the grain and unfortunately that person is not Armand White and when I do find that person I will happily share them with you.
if you ever needed convincing that we live in a solar system, that we are on a ball of rock orbiting around the sun with other balls of rock, then look at that. That's the, the solar system coming down and grabbing you by the throat. The BBC, for the most part, tends to broadcast complete and utter crap. I actually go weeks, sometimes even months, I'm sure, without even watching a single programme, or perhaps just occasionally dipping in to see the news. And it's kind of tragic when you look at back at some of the corporation's finest achievements at the present. I'm working through some truly great series like um, The Ascent of Man and America series that actually amaze you and educate you in equal measure. Now there can be no denying that the BBC's strong point is nature programmes. I think David Attenborough is probably I think one of the most important naturalists to have ever been. Um, he has single-handedly made entire generations of people view the world in a different way. Last year I was flicking through the channels and I came across a relatively young, floppy-haired Mancunian who seemed to have this kind of permanent grin on his face and a slightly meek presentation style. I had of course blundered across Professor Brian Cox and Wonders of the Solar System. Now, to begin with, I was quite derisory of it. The show seemed to be, at times, almost laughable especially in terms of how it was directed. There were seemed to be numerous shots of Professor Cox standing on top of a mountain, kind of looking round in awe, clearly being directed from the crew to slowly and meaningfully look from left to right. There was an inexhaustible amount of shots of Cox looking up at the sky with a kind of dopey expression on his face. And then there was the not-so-subtle music, which seemed to kind of echo Chinese propaganda films and how it was meant to evoke a certain feeling within you. Despite all these kind of, I suppose, superficial gripes about it, something did begin to happen. Unfortunately, I only caught, I think, the last episode, which was the show was simply too fascinating not to enjoy. I love science and always have a particular fascination with the planet, which I think stems from watching 2001 and 2010 repeatedly as a child. Channel 4 used to have some excellent shows dedicated to science um, in the 90s. I don't know, some of you might remember the series Equinox, which was broadcast on a Sunday night. And there would often be these kind of John Hurt narrated journey through the solar system that were absolutely brilliant. I had a kind of childlike fascination and excitement about the universe and the planets. And what I found was the more I watched Professor Brian Cox, the more this passion was reignited within me. I have in recent weeks been really forced to eat my words in how I kind of took the piss out of him to begin with. Now, if you don't know Professor Brian Cox, he was actually a keyboard player in the vaguely terrible dance band from the 90s called D-Ream, who had a series of hits including Things Can Only Get Better, which was cringeworthily adopted by New Labour as their party song. And Cox eventually left the band, returned to university to study physics, and he actually worked at the Large Hydron Collider in Switzerland until um, whilst filming a promotional piece for the project um, a BBC researcher saw him and saw some potential 
and also doing his own TV shows, which I think he's done a lot of children's stuff, and then eventually was commissioned to do Wonders of the Solar System. Now, let me digress for a minute because I think this will go in some part explaining why I was initially quite uh, put off by Professor Brian Cox. As I said before, I don't tend to watch much TV, especially TV series on a week-to-week basis. I normally watch a couple of episodes. If I like it, I will wait for the box set, which normally appears the Monday after the last show has aired. And it is hard to find on British television, I think, quality programmes. Um, HBO in America seems to consistently produce top quality television. You have to really, really dig past, I suppose, the kind of the gaudy pantomime of light entertainment that seems to make up the schedules on BBC One and ITV. Just watch anything past seven o'clock on either BBC or ITV on a Saturday, and I think it is conclusive proof that mankind has reached all-time lows in terms of what passes as mass entertainment. The obsession with audience participation now irks me beyond belief. You can't even watch the news without having to have a segment where viewers have texted in their opinion or text their picture or emailed some annoying opinion on something which they probably know very little about. One of the most incredible examples of this came about three years ago when the G8 were having a summit and I was watching Sky News and after the summit had ended who did we cut to for their opinion? Well it certainly wasn't any kind of economists or known journalists, it was in fact Bono to tell us that uh, the G8 summit had not been good for third world countries. That kind of thing really pisses me off, the obsession with celebrity and what people on the street have to say about things which I don't honestly think they can truly comprehend or understand. All of this has left me with a total hatred of light entertainment presenters, people like Dermot O'Leary or Adrian Charles whose face appears to be made out of leftover scrotum. So when a young, good-looking, floppy-haired, softly-voiced Mancunian appeared on screen, bathed in a soft focus, my initial thoughts were that Cox was likely the winner of some kind of BBC rip-off of a Simon Tannant contest like, I don't know, Science Professor Idol or something stupid like that. However, despite my initial put-downs, Cox seemed to have something which all these other presenters don't, which was integrity and a real enthusiasm. Now, the first thing you'll notice about both Wonders series is how many locations around the world Cox travels to. Some have actually derided it for this very reason, saying it actually feels more like a travel ship programme than a science show. I would actually, having at the moment, watching series like The Ascent of Man and America, would say it's actually quite in keeping with the traditions of the corporation. In The Ascent of Man, especially the presenter, Dr Vronsky, goes to all corners of the Earth during the 13 episodes. And you can argue, is it really that important that they go to the actual locations? I think it is because otherwise the shows would feel more like lectures than they would kind of television. And don't forget, this is meant to be entertainment also. However, one of the, I think, things that kind of validates the reason why Cox travels around the globe so much is, especially in the context of the solar system, is that there are so many places on Earth that look like other places in our solar system. And although the CGI sequences are pretty good, even for a TV show, some of the grainy pictures from probes and telescopes showing Earth-based equivalents 
aren't necessarily clear. So when you see Cox standing in a riverbed in America and then shows the boulder scatters around and then shows a picture, for example, of the surface of Titan, you can see the similarities between the two. And in my mind, it makes it a lot more identifiable. And what you kind of realize when you're watching the show is that although the solar system seems incredibly alien, it is very recognizable to what we know on Earth. And this is one of the things I love about Wonders of the Solar System. It truly made you see, I suppose, not only how unique the other planets and moons are, but I think as well made me realize how special the Earth is. Episode one of Wonders of the Solar System deals with the sun and how it affects us. Now, we've all seen sunsets before on planet Earth, but seeing the sunset from the point of view of a probe on Mars is for some reason utterly stunning and episode two shows us how the solar system came to be. Now it was no surprise to me that I later found out that Cox was actually a consultant on Danny Boyle's Sunshine and indeed along with the score by Sheridan Tongue it does have a wonderfully cinematic feel to it. Episode three takes a look at the Earth's atmosphere and those of the other planets and moons most notably Titan. Episode 4 tackles how gravity affects the planets, and Episode 5, by far the most intriguing and exciting of all of them, looks at the prospects of life on other planets and moons within our own solar system. Episode 5, I think, did feel like that more can be covered, but what Cox does absolutely brilliantly is bring it back to Earth for the show's conclusion, and one of the things that you kind of realise is just how amazing our Earth is once you've kind of been on this kind of journey through the solar system and just looking up at the sky and seeing birds and all the animals and and how lucky we are that we are I suppose alive and living on this planet key I think to the series is the word or now now I've seen similar programs on the likes of National Geographic and the Discovery Channel and they tend to annoy me because they seem more based on the universe and its apocalyptic possibilities the amount of times I've seen shows on both channels that have this endless stream of asteroids crashing into the earth and talks of scientists saying well all you need one is half the size of London and it will wipe out everything we know it although that threat does exist I think these shows kind of hype it up to ridiculous levels and I think what Cox has done especially in Wonders of the Solar System is bring a bit of reality back to science and just let the natural occurrences fire up our imagination. Now, on the subject of imagination, the one notable omission from both Wonders of the Solar System and Wonders of the Universe is the G word, and the G word being God. Now, the BBC, I think, has lost much of its edge, I think, in trying to appeal to the widest possible audience. I was fearing at one stage Cox was going to kind of break down, and having presented us all of the scientific fact as to how the universe and solar system came to be would then kind of counterbalance that with of course there is the theory of god creating the universe etc etc cox has stated publicly that he is an atheist and it is refreshing to me that the wonder series are about pure science and physics creationism is not science it is faith and there is absolutely in my eyes no compatibility between faith and science. The minute you insert God into science, you have left the realm of science and you are talking about faith. Okay, I suppose one of the biggest oxymoronic statements ever is intelligent design. Well, when you actually look into what that means, 
you can clearly see there is absolutely no intelligence about it whatsoever. Science is about the pursuit of knowledge. Scientists don't claim that science answers every anomaly out there, but they do try and find the answers to some of the most fundamental questions that we have. And even when they reach a conclusion, good scientists are still open to debate and further research. Often sometimes a discovery will come along that completely wipes away what we kind of understood before. I find this infinitely more fascinating than simply stating that it was a divine creator who made everything and accepting the fact that that creator has built in to the universe so many contradictions and frankly baffling variables. The Andromeda galaxy, which is our closest neighbour in terms of galaxies, is on a direct collision course for our own galaxy. Now, the religious will look up and say, well, this is God's work. What complete and utter nonsense that is. You could imagine a um, show which a religious equivalent of the Wonders series, and I wonder how completely boring it would be, because every time we kind of hit the unknown, the presenter could just turn around and say, well... God moves in mysterious ways and I'm sure his divine plan will become clearer nearer the time. Frankly, that is mind-numbingly stupid and that is why I would champion the fact that the Wonders series is good atheist television. The Wonders of the Universe series, which aired earlier this year, was made up of four episodes. Episode one deals with destiny in the universe, in particular the second law of thermodynamics and the notion of heat death concerning the end of the universe. Episode 2, entitled Stardust, explains the various cycles in the universe's life and how matter recycles to form new planets and stars. Episode 3, Falling, shows the effect of gravity on us and the universe and how orbits are created before the series finale, Messengers, that explores light and its effect on time and distances. If the first series of Wonders was a little too much in the style department, universe appears to have ramped these elements up even further. I actually joke not that I say there is scene in Wonders of the Universe when Professor Brian Cox walks away not in slow motion but is still walking away from an exploding building like something out of X-Men Origins Wolverine. Of course the exploding building is meant to represent some kind of cosmic catastrophe but whoever thought this looked cool quite frankly needs their head examined and the visual fun doesn't stop there. Cox seems to be constantly shown walking purposefully off into the distance with a kind of swagger looking eerily like something out of the video for the Verbs, Bittersweet Symphony. But despite all of these, I think the show is as awe-inspiring as its predecessor, with the kind of facts and revelations that will make your mind well with sheer amazement. One of the criticisms of both series is how dumbed down Cox's presentation style is. He is a big fan of the visual metaphor, and I really do fail to understand these dissenters. In the first series, through the use of a Zippo and some peanuts, Cox demonstrates the power of the sun's gravitational pull. He proceeds to place one about an inch from the lighter, representing one astronomical unit, which is the distance from the Earth to the sun. He then proceeds to get in a car, drive half a kilometre, and places the other peanut down, and showing the extent of how far the sun's gravitational pull extends into the universe. Now, to me, I think in doing this, he makes the subjects far more understandable on a basic level. You could call this dumbing down, but I think the sheer 
distances involved of what he's talking about are almost too much to comprehend in their actual form. One of the reviews I read about the series saying it had been dumbed down amused me quite a lot because the person signing it off said that they were a professor of physics at a university and I sort of think well yeah to you it probably does seem dumbed down but to in order to kind of get the message across to the average viewer I think we need this type of presentation style to really kind of understand and comprehend what he's talking about. One area where the BBC did cave into public pressure on the series was in Wonders of the Universe. The music was apparently too loud for some viewers, which is just complete bollocks, to be honest with you. And for the last two episodes, they did turn it down. Now, a further gripe I do have about the release of Wonders on Blu-ray is Wonders of the Solar System is a pretty decent package. It comes across two discs and it has a DTS high resolution soundtrack. And when you watch it on a big television and a decent surround sound system, it does have a really kind of cinematic feel to it. However, for Wonders of the Universe, which was released the Monday after the last episode air, and I think it was on the Sunday before, the series was on one disc and I think there was a noticeable difference in the quality of the picture. But worst of all, the BBC adopted for a Dolby 2.0 stereo soundtrack. Now, this might seem like a minor quibble, but when I watched the series on the BBC's HD channel, it was actually broadcast in 5.1 surround sound. And at the very least, I think we could have expected that on the Blu-ray. I don't think in this regard the BBC are thinking about the longevity of these series on the home video format. I think they're trying to get it out as quickly as possible. It's actually happened on another series, and David Attenborough narrated Madagascar, which was a rather brilliant nature program about the island. However, in order to get it out in shops as quick as possible, they have released a Blu-ray with pretty poor picture and again a Dolby Stereo 2.0 soundtrack. I actually emailed the BBC about this and specifically asking why they had done it and all I got was a response saying that they would happily refund my money or send me a copy of the DVD. They didn't actually answer my question or anything like that. I have actually emailed them back and I'm awaiting a response. If I do get one I will post it up on the blog for you to read. The minor gripes aside, I think if you have an interest and love of science there is a lot to sink your teeth into wonders. Brian Cox's presentation style may be a little bit of an acquired taste but I I really kind of employ you to kind of stick with him and I think his enthusiasm will rub off on you and really there is so much to enjoy in both these series. The computer, an extension of the human intellect. The NCOM 511, center of the most calculating intelligence on earth. Programmed by master control, to survive by all means. Soon, the ultimate tool will become the ultimate enemy. I still do not understand why you want to break into the system. Because, man, somewhere in one of these memories is the evidence. control program everybody's been talking about. Kevin Flynn, computer genius. 
Taken prisoner and held captive within the digital world of the computer itself. Trapped inside an electronic arena where love and escape do not compute. I am now 31 years of age and I'm reaching a period of my life in which I am experiencing something that I never imagined I would feel and I think you can put this down to the innocence and stupidity of youth and that feeling is nostalgia. I am nostalgic for the simple pleasures of buying eight cans of beer and sitting by a river with my friends drinking booze. I am nostalgic for a time when I used to smoke and cigarettes cost £1.50 a packet. I don't smoke anymore and even if I wanted to I couldn't because there's no way on earth I'm paying £6.50 for a packet of fags. However, in a film context nostalgia can be an emotional minefield for a human being. Growing up I was obviously Star Wars obsessed and would watch all three and think they were all pretty spectacular films. The Phantom Menace came out along with the other prequels and of course on the day Revenge of the Sith came out I purchased it and decided to do a Star Wars marathon. Now I had not seen Return of the Jedi since probably the age of about 16, 17 and even then I still enjoyed it and oh my god was I gobsmacked at how bad it was to the point where I kind of thought I know what happens I know the good guys wins let's just call it a day and I managed to battle through it but it is an absolute chore of a film to sit through there have of course actually been the occasional joys my girlfriend had never seen Labyrinth before and this was a film that always used to play during the Christmas holiday before Christmas during the good part of the Christmas holiday and I would watch it normally you come on about one o'clock in the afternoon and it was just joyous building on the excitement for Christmas Day. Tron was one of those films that in my memory may have been elevated way beyond its actual quality. As an impressionable child it was something of an obsession. Its many set pieces were recreated by my friends and myself from the light cycle fights around the park normally 
although we didn't have a light cycle we used to use a BMX and frisbee death matches these would often result in tears as people would be unable to deflect the frisbees and cut one straight in the face a Tron annual from the 80s was one of my most prized possessions and as time wore on I kind of came to kind of forget the film until the DVD release last decade there had been talk of various sequels and reboots and despite the occasional piece of artwork or design in a computer game there seemed to be not much more to this than just a kind of myth really going back to the original Tron has been something of a joy and at times quite a frustrating one we are all very well versed in the vocabulary of the digital age we know for example how many gigabytes we can download with our monthly broadband packages we've all experienced the frustration of a program on our system that for an unknown reason suddenly stops working due to a script failure caused by some fashion of buffer overflow issue it's all gobbledygook in many instances remedied by the simple process of switching one's computer on and off however these types of occurrences do promote a very common reaction in us I've lost count of the amount of times I have heard myself or heard other people refer to their computers as having a mind of their own or behaving in a way that generally that would indicate they are infested with some free-thinking programs I have on numerous occasions also accused my Xbox of cheating when I've been playing games and I have been losing pathetic I know but I'm still convinced mine has a vendetta against me The Matrix may be the film that defined the technological zeitgeist of the late 90s but Tron was playing in the virtual reality realm almost 20 years before Neo plugged in its origin like many creations have fairly humble beginnings in the mid 70s a young illustrator called Steven Leisberger started his own animation studio that not only produced more traditional hand-drawn works but also explored the new frontier of digital animation and its possible integration with film the studio's break came when it produced a series of animated Olympics featuring a selection of animals participating in events. This was actually purchased by ABC in time for the Moscow Olympics. However, the project was shelved when the American team withdrew in protest over the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. In retrospect, they should have probably joined in, but however, that's just one for history, I suppose. Leisberger was undeterred by the studio's setbacks and carried on exploring new forms of animation in particular, a method that would be known as the backlit style this would lead to a short animated piece that would feature a kind of intergalactic warrior that was used as an advertising spot for local radio stations and what was the name of this neon character well one idea was to call him electronic after he was decidedly glowing in appearance but being quite the salesman Leisberger opted for something slightly more catchy and of course that name was Tron through the simple subtraction of letters an idea was born only who on earth would be interested in this concept now the relationship between computers and society has always been a fairly skeptical one on the part of the human especially in films I'm one of the very first episodes of the 24 frames cast was about a film called Colossus the Forbin project in which a computer takes over the world and enslaves humanity there was Demon Seed in which a computer takes over a house and tries to have a child with Julia Christie. If you like Julia Christie, I can recommend this film as she is virtually naked throughout. 
However, there was a kind of skepticism and panic towards computer, and Lysberger decided to his insert his newfound character into this. Running parallel at the time was the explosion in computer game culture, and I highlight the word culture because I am sick of people deriding computer games and dismissing them for a variety of ridiculous reasons. Computer games are an art form, and that is the end of it. I'll come down off my soapbox now. However, the arcades of the late 70s and early 80s were a mecca for young people, complete with their very own idols, who knew every possible angle a pixel ball could fly off at. Of course, we all laugh now at these hulking monoliths with their primitive graphics and sound, but to a techno-nerd like Leisberger, it was the inspiration he needed to begin working on a concept in which Tron could be inserted. Leisberger and his studio began producing a series of storyboards with which to sell the wonderful world of Tron to potential investors. Despite all this being post-Star Wars, many studios were not interested in what they were actually trying to peddle. It was important to note at this stage also that Lionsberg was not even sure how he could achieve the desired look of the film. That's how much of a shot in the dark it would have been for a potential investor. Producer David Kushner eventually was able to source a meeting with Disney, who despite the obvious huge technical challenges of the projects, were actually very interested in it. Now, at the time, Disney was not the powerhouse it was. In fact, the studio had just produced its most expensive film to date, The Black Hole, which, although far from being a flop, had not been a huge success that the studio had hoped for. I actually really enjoy The Black Hole as well. It's the film, I've gone back to that one quite recently, and I actually kind of think it stands up as a pretty good kind of action-adventure film. And it's also pretty scary for kids as well. I was watching it with a five-year-old who was absolutely terrified of the robots. But after all this, why would Disney want to invest in another project? Well, in going with Tron, Disney was in fact very much keeping in the spirit of Walt Disney. He was a real trailblazer and maverick when it came to wanting to push the boundaries of film and obviously in particular animation. With Disney on board, there was still one very minor problem, which was no one still knew how to actually do it. A series of designers, including Harrison Ellenshaw, Sid Mead and Mobius, who had previously worked on Jodorowsky's aborted Dune project, all began working on the design aspects of the film. And Leisberg was still experimenting with the film's visuals. Using some leftover costumes from the Black Hole and a world champion frisbee thrower, the production crew began to experiment with various techniques in the end opting to shoot the film on black and white 70mm film, with the actors wearing white suits with black stripes. These raw images were projected onto a cell about 20 centimetres by 12 centimetres and the process repeated for each time a new visual element being added. This process was repeated for every single frame of the film and then had to be processed a further five times after that. Kodak had to actually invent new film for the production and it is one of the aspects about Tron that I love the most. It feels like a film that has been made by a human being and not a computer. Now obviously there are animated computer sequences in it, but knowing what went into each frame to me makes watching it just appreciate the craft that went into its production. But after all of this, what is actually Tron about? Well, the film takes place in two worlds, the world of the users and the world of the programs. Designer Kevin Flynn is sacked from a computer company called Encrom. 
after his idea for a computer game is stolen by the company's CEO, Ed Dillinger. Now, Flynn, in the context of the film, is classed as a user. And when he tries to hack into the computer's mainframe, we enter the world of the programs. Now, programs are manifestations of users. They are identical in appearance apart from their uniforms, but behave as directed and programmed by the users. And it's in the world of the programs where we later come across Tron. Dillinger is represented by a character called Sark in the mainframe. And the mainframe is governed by a total in a totalitarian fashion by the Master Control Program, or the MSCP. Now both, now Ed Dillinger is played by David Warner, and obviously he is Sark, and he also voices the MCP. Peter O'Toole was originally going to play Dillinger, and didn't quite grasp what Tron was actually about until we turned up on the set and they started talking about mainframes and whatnot and he just thought there was going to be kind of gladiatorial fighting in it and was kind of sold on that concept when he saw what was actually entailed he dropped out and was replaced by warner i actually think warner's pretty brilliant in the film he's he's a great character actor david warner he does scare the shit out of me a little bit but anyway back to the story flynn enlists the help of some encom employees former girlfriend moira played by cindy morgan whose program in the mainframe is called Eura and her boyfriend Alan, played by Bruce Broxnier, whose security program is the titular Tron. Naturally, they can't just hack into the mainframe from Flynn's apartment overlooking his arcade. They have to get back into ENCOM and break in. Now, a process which is incredibly complex to explain, Flynn is digitally downloaded into the mainframe by some manner of particle beam and becomes a user in the world of the programs. The mainframe is ruled by with an iron fist by Sark and the MSCP, who has begun to exert control over Dillinger in the real world, and fancies himself as something of a real-world despot. The mainframe is a fairly horrific place. Rogue programs, or those deemed redundant, are forced to fight in a variety of games against each other that result in the death of the loser. Flynn is labelled a rogue program and is forced to fight his way through the mainframe and hopefully back to the real world. He does of course this with the help of Tron and Yuri. And to get out, prove that he was the original creator of the software program and bring Dillinger down. So, why do I love Tron? Well, I think it is relevant, prophetic, and above all, it is extremely good fun. Firstly, the look of the film. I can pretty much guarantee that if you were coming into it for the first time you would have never seen anything like it before by today's standards i think it of course looks dated however the notion of the world of the mainframe is a really well realized place you can accept how the characters look in it because it is something in its own right the fight scenes are absolutely incredible the game in which this kind of frisbee is thrown both protagonists have to stand on two platforms with rings around it and every time the frisbee hits a ring that disappears eventually the amount of rings disappear and the person you're fighting disappears off the end it's not exactly the most inventive game ever but when you watch it i've got a real sense of the danger of what was going on it seemed these scenes seem generally exciting 
there is a light cycle chase in which you're on this kind of motorbike that has a trail or a beam that flows behind it and if the person you are battling against hits the beam their bike explodes again the computer graphics that are used may look a bit primitive but it's so inventive to watch that you can't help but get sucked into it i love the film's sound design also there is a kind of beeps and noises that come out the mainframe which when you listen to your computer gurgling away this seems like a kind of genuine expansion of all that inner workings of a computer as i said before the sheer inventiveness of the film beggars belief you know when filmmakers are actually having to invent technology with which to realize their dream you have to salute the achievement regardless of the result of what they've done and um, films like final fantasy it might not be the best cartoon or animation whatever it is ever but just watch some of the making logs on that disc and you can see just how hard everyone worked in making it come alive conceptually i love this idea of a totalitarian computer now i have a pc i do not have an apple mac yet there is something sickeningly efficient about apple macs and their users that pissed me off i was recently talking to a friend and I said that my PC had a virus and they kind of looked at me with this smug expression on the face and said well why don't you just buy a Mac and I can imagine if an Apple Mac was like the mainframe it would be something like North Korea whereas the PC has kind of like a more kind of hippie attitude to how it works some days things just simply don't work on my computer annoying yes but there is a sense that it has some kind of idiosyncratic nature to it which Apple Macs have this sleek almost too efficient sheen to them which kind of which is reflected in the way their users have this kind of smug arrogance to how good they are there is a quasi religious aspect to the film as well i think at the start we see flynn using his program clue who is trying to hack into the mainframe and flynn eventually gets clue killed because he tries to do exactly what his user has told him and when flynn is actually put into the mainframe the programs who look up to their users as their creators soon realize that they can kind of go against what they have been programmed to do but i think above all the aspect of the film that i enjoy the most is that it does really feel like a celebration again of gaming culture its narrative i think has very much a kind of computer game logic to them where each scene begins with a setup and then a task that must be completed and baddies defeated with also end of level baddies to contend with as well during the production of the film computer games were put up all over the set and Jeff Bridges himself said that often he would uh, miss his calls because he would be so busy playing Pac-Man he didn't realise that he was needed now of course Tron is by no means a perfect film I would be lying if I was trying to try and claim that it was I think because it was really conceived as an idea and kind of really a story was kind of written to fit that idea it does feel too conceptual it is very much i suppose in love with the world it has created and rightly so i suppose i mean you know when you're having to have two computer effects companies do the animated parts of the film you're going to want to kind of show these off and of course again going back to this kind of modern take on it if you've kind of grown up in the world of cgi you would look at that and just laugh i mean literally they are not even as good as sega mega drive graphics sometimes but what this does do is kind of bring, I think, a kind of a defensiveness about the film from people who love it. And you perhaps kind of lose sight of the fact that, you know, it is quite a uh, flimsy story. And 
perhaps you allow your nostalgia to give it a bigger break than it might actually deserve. Perhaps for me though, the biggest kind of gripe about the film is the film is called Tron and obviously you expect the film to kind of feature him quite a lot. He isn't really in it a great deal and we don't really get to see why he is so highly regarded in the mainframe. And I kind of think that's a slight disappointment. Although Jeff Bridges is brilliant and I really enjoy his performance, you want to see Tron kick some ass a little bit more than he does. But that being said, it is still a fantastically good fun film. And I perhaps it sounds slightly kind of mawkish, but I think it's a good family film as well. I don't think, I especially think to younger people, um, perhaps from the age of three till about eight, I think they will get a pretty good kick out of this film. Now, it wasn't a great financial success at the time, but it did inspire a fanatical following. I can recall a lot of Tron merchandise as a kid. I had the characters, I had a Tron Frisbee. I think through the ages it has become something of a well-loved cult classic. And for its technical achievement alone, I think it is really, for its technical achievement alone, I actually think it really deserves to be kind of revered and enjoyed. And I think it will be around with us mercifully for quite a long time to come. Now, fast forward 30 odd years and Disney clearly felt the need that they needed a new franchise. Tron had kind of remained in the public consciousness, so I can kind of understand why they would be quite keen to go back into the world of Tron. Certainly you would appeal to the people who remembered the original. And obviously there's room to really kind of up the ante and get in new audiences. There was of course the, uh, the old computer game here and there, but when it became clear that a new Tron film was in the work, I was actually at first pretty excited. The teaser trailer was absolutely brilliant and for the record I absolutely love trailers which are their own self-contained little story as opposed to just an effects reel for what's going to come in the film. And I suddenly looked at the the kind of the visual style they had gone for and I thought this could really really work and above all I was kind of thinking well it's a bit too Matrix-esque in, in idea perhaps but they seem to kind of really kind of pushed away from that and were doing their own original thing that they had done in the first film. I'm a massive, massive fan of dance music and when I heard Daft Punk were doing the soundtrack I was getting extremely excited for it. So last New Year's Eve I paid my £15 for an IMAX ticket, donned my 3D glasses and sat back and hoped for what I would be the dawn of a new franchise. A few nights ago I revisited Joseph Kinski's Astonishing World and I think I finally worked out what was wrong with Tron Legacy. The story for anyone of Tron Legacy who doesn't know the film, Flynn has gone missing for many years, leaving his son Sam, now a major if somewhat reluctant shareholder at Encom, to try and sabotage the company, which has now become kind of like an, an evil version of Microsoft. Alan, still played by Bruce Broxnia, has received a page from Kevin from the mainframe. Now, Again, we go through the motions a bit with Sam um, returning to his father's arcade, which is still um, perfectly functioning. It hasn't really changed, except the dust from uh, the original Tron film. And finds himself beamed into the mainframe, only where the primitive graphics were, you now have one of the most incredible CGI worlds I have ever seen in my entire life. Now, clue from the original film, 
who was dispatched has come back. I don't think, I think it's just meant to be a, uh, I don't know, a more improved version of the original Clue and has taken over the grid. Clue, by the way, is played by a young looking Jeff Bridges. Sam is forced into the mainframe and has to fight in the games where during, again, an absolutely incredible light cycle sequence, he is rescued by a young pretty girl called Cora who is the surviving member of a rogue set of programs called the ISOs. She rescues him and takes him back and there he's reunited with his father who is now living in exile in the mainframe. What follows is kind of a repeat of the first film. Sam, Kevin and Cora try and escape the mainframe being hotly pursued by Clue and for the, well, I won't ruin it for those anyone who hasn't seen it but the film leaves with um, a pretty good hint that there will be more to follow. Now what I love about the film, well obviously it looks absolutely incredible. It is so well realised and thought out right down to these kind of hexagonal um, tiles in the floor. Of course the neon is back however it has a kind of almost kind of menacing tone to it like the kind of quite an oppressive feel and I, I love the way in which the film differentiates between good guy and bad guy by using red for the bad guys and blue for the good guys. It's such a kind of basic visual metaphor but I, for some reason I just really really enjoyed it. The sound design of the film is incredible on IMAX and even on Blu-ray. This is a building shaking soundtrack and of course there is the Daft Punk score which I wrote an entry in my blog actually which I, I was a little bit disappointed with it but when when you actually watch it with the film I think it really comes alive and Daft Punk unfortunately do make a cameo appearance I'm not a huge fan of cameo appearances like that and it's a bit too kind of oh look there's Daft Punk well, you know, what really does it mean but now what I think is wrong with Tron Legacy is that it feels so much like exposition after exposition after exposition there are nice little nods to the original film in it but it is obviously trying to do many things once it's trying to be a sequel a reboot and also the basis for more tron stories and in trying to hit all those bases i think it kind of loses a sense of what it is the story is very much by the numbers irritatingly the story of the isos and cora seems so much more interesting than the actual story that is being told I understand this is going to be addressed in a animated series but I kind of really wanted to see that I don't think it was entirely necessary to have Sam come into the world of Tron I think it could have existed with just a kind of a continuing adventure of Flynn but despite having this incredible world I don't think Tron Legacy really explores the full potential of it it's a great setting but very little else goes on about it now think back to the original film and how it kind of predicted kind of certain trends and computer culture think how far we've come since then and then just how pedestrian Tron seems it doesn't really kind of seem to say anything about the modern state of how far we've come in terms of computer technology and how we interact with computers now as well. Tron had this kind of version where the real person was projected into a computer. Well, in a way, think how true that's become with 
things like Facebook and MySpace and the whole kind of social networking angle of our lives now where we really can have a dual existence in the real and virtual world. And I don't think Tron Legacy kind of, perhaps it was even deliberately, but I don't think the film really kind of explores these types of concepts that I think would have made for a really truly fascinating piece and perhaps even commentary on the state of how human beings are in relationship to the virtual world. It does have some great sequences like the light cycle chase, but this sequence appears almost halfway through the film and it kind of feels like it should be at the end. And there is a, a good kind of like shootout flying sequence at the end, but I don't know if it's any more incredible than the light cycle. And it feels like a bit of a kind of a, a forced dawn when that ending does come that perhaps there was something bigger and better waiting that we just don't get to see. That being said, I think Tron Legacy is, that being said, I do enjoy Tron Legacy. It's just a little bit frustrating to see it thinking after all these years of waiting, what we get really is a kind of a prettier rehash of the original. I understand that the film has been quite a big success. I should imagine it's been a huge seller on uh, Blu-ray and DVD. And as I understand, there is going to be some sequels so we can kind of perhaps get into those slightly deeper concepts and ideas that I was talking about. I hope they do anyway, rather than just trying to kind of tell a kind of another by the numbers pedestrian adventure in the world of the mainframe. Hopefully it won't take as long to come out as Tron Legacy did. And I think I've got perhaps a kind of a misguided hope and excitement about this franchise as to where it goes. But, but like I said, time will tell. And I just hope that they kind of try and aspire to be a little bit more than what they did with Tron Legacy. Definitely, I can recommend getting the Blu-ray of this film. It's one of those, a bit like the Dark Knight Blu-ray, where the um, aspect ratio changes for the IMAX scenes. And even if you don't have a 3D television, like I don't, but the image quality is so good, it almost has that perception to it. So I can certainly recommend it out if you want something to show your system of. And that is going to be it for this episode of the 24 Frames cast. And I do need to apologise a little bit, actually. I was hoping to get a show out once every two weeks, but unfortunately some work commitments have uh, got in the way of that. But we should be back on track with another episode coming out um, relatively quickly. I have had quite a few emails and tweets regarding the next instalment of the Ridley Scott retrospective. It's, of course, great to hear. I can confirm it is in the works. Um, it is taking a little bit longer than I thought this one, to be honest with you, because um, I'm decidedly mixed on the films, and I was slightly disappointed with myself when I listened back to that first episode when I got to Legend and I didn't really have a great deal to say about it because I didn't really enjoy the film and I'm hoping to remedy that by kind of taking a different concept and applying it to the films and trying to kind of discuss it on that basis so so we'll have to wait a little bit longer but I would envisage it will be probably about at least another couple of months but I will uh, keep you posted. Also, the blog will be changing quite significantly in the next couple of weeks. Um, it's reached the end of its natural life in its present form. There's a lot I want to do with it, which I really can't do, just because of the template that I've used. Um, there is going to be a couple of interesting pages in that, that I want to make you aware of. The first is the exclusive page, where I'm going to post shows which won't be on the main feed, or I might post shows um, on there before they hit the feed. So do check it out in case there's anything uh, going to be updated on it. And also there is going to be a page which is going to be dedicated to a film that I am currently working on and producing. Um, I have actually got funding for this and what I'm going to be doing is keeping this page as a kind of 
kind of mini blog off the main blog really kind of detailing the highs and lows of film production it is my um, first film that I've been involved with I have been involved in production before um, mainly music videos and commercials however um, it's gonna be quite an interesting journey this one um, like I said I have actually got funding for it so um, it is gonna happen at some time I'm hoping to look for a, sh a start date for next September so obviously we're kind of many many months away from going into production but if you are, have got an interest in production and kind of want to find out more about the trials and tribulations of it uh, do check it out because I think it's going to be quite an interesting journey and hopefully you enjoy coming on it with me okay well many thanks for listening and I'll be in contact soon bye